Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Thus Spake Zarathustra, or Nietzsche is Peachy. Uh, the first pun was mine. The second one was dad's. So Nietzsche uh, is that strange son of Martin Luther, as we mentioned at the end of the last episode, and we'll get into that a bit more. But he is also a metastatic cancer in everything we do and say and think um, anymore, despite being a famously named but not often read philosopher from the 19th century. So today, dad is going to walk us through this uh, madman and hammer of God, how he got to be that way, what his impact has been, and where we should... Um, Appreciate his critique and where we must part company. Sound good, Dad? Sounds good, Sarah. All right. Well, tell tell us how this miserable SOB came into the world and what his life was like. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I'm going to come down more on the side of him being a strange and unwilling hammer of God. But uh, we have to cover some ground before we get to that point. We can I can begin with a personal confession. I was fascinated by Nietzsche from my freshman year in college at Bard College in upstate New York, uh, I spent all my free time reading Walter Kaufman's The Portable Nietzsche, which was a anthology of Nietzsche's uh, writings. Now that you say it, I, rec- I remember seeing that title on our shelf when I was a kid. Huh. Right. It's probably long since been worn out and thrown away. And of course, later on in life, I studied rather more serious editions than Walter Nietzsche is Peachy Kaufman's version of him, <laughs> uh, which was a pretty sunny one, but it appealed to a lot of young people in my uh, of, of my generation at that time. Uh, we can begin with the connection. Uh, Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran pastor. Uh, though Nietzsche hardly knew him, he died when he was only five years old. And he was raised by his mother and his elder sister. And there was some funny psychological dynamics going on in that uh, family. I don't want to get into all that. Uh, But a sort of Ingmar Bergman kind of unhappy uh, parsonage sort of background story. And I think that if uh, you wanted to do a Freudian analysis, there'd probably be a lot of fodder there for the for the taking. Nietzsche was a precocious uh, student, uh, very gifted. He uh, raced through his doctoral program and uh, graduated as a classical philologist, uh, what we call today a classicist. Um, And his first book was called The Birth of Tragedy. And it was a very insightful analysis of uh, Apollo Uh, and Dionysius as opposing mythological forces uh, in Greek tragedy, Apollo standing for order, Dionysius standing for libido, for um, the lust for life, and so forth, and how these two contravailing forces uh, give birth to tragedy, a, a tragic conflict that cannot be resolved. A generation later, Sigmund Freud uh, published a very similar analysis in Civilization and Its Discontents. But Nietzsche did not like the academic life. He found it much too stifling and um, 
repressive of creative uh, endeavors and impulses. And so voluntarily he left the academy uh, to make his way as an independent writer. He had a a failed love affair that uh, hurt him deeply. But primarily he put all of his energy into the life of the mind. And he went through a period of radical 19th century historicism, the conviction that everything is so thoroughly historically conditioned, nothing abides, nothing stands the test of time. Everything is reducible to its uh, genesis in history. Uh, And coupled with that, he went through a period of of scientific positivism in which uh, he believed that the natural sciences were uh, actually discovering the way things really are and that they are replacing all previous metaphysics um, and so forth. But these were just episodes in his intellectual journey. Uh, The main event for him was his early love for Schopenhauer. Uh, Schopenhauer was one of the great German idealists of the early 19th century, a kind of an outlier in many ways, because he wrote a book called The Will and Representation, something like that, in which Schopenhauer argued that moving us in all things was this Dionysian force of libido, uh, this force of will. And in order to hold off or to fend off the chaos of experience, uh, the will is constantly imposing uh, some kind of uh, artificial order on the chaos of experience. But of course, that being artificial never finally stands up. So Schopenhauer is therefore finally, again, like Freud and Nietzsche, a kind of a tragic figure thinking that there's this deep conflict between the life force and the uh, constraints of physical and social reality. So I've been uh, deeply immersed in Augustine lately, and this sounds very familiar to me. Uh, Augustine seems to be the great diagnostician of human willfulness and the inability Mm -hmm. to simply set it aside in a brave Pelagian kind of way. Is there some sort of intellectual connection? Are are these like modern reworkings of a deep Augustinian idea? I like that. Uh, I've often thought that that's true. Uh, I think that uh, one of the suppressed themes in Lutheran theology is the doctrine of desire. Uh, that stems from Augustine. Our hearts are restless, he prayed, until they rest in thee, O God. Uh, And that little prayer expresses the heart of Augustine's anthropology, the restless heart, the desire that cannot be satisfied with any creature as its object and can finally only find happiness when it finds the creator of all creatures as its highest good, the object of its desire. But I presume Schopenhauer and Nietzsche don't allow for that discovery ever, right? Of course, yes, exactly. They don't believe that Augustine's solution to the problem um, is valid. Uh, And that's why they're finally tragic figures, advocate a kind of a tragic view. Schopenhauer actually 
affirms Buddhism as the most realistic life philosophy, the renunciation of all desire, and the recognition that the phenomenal world is a world of illusion, of maya. You have to, in a disciplined way, uh, renounce its hold over you in order to free the self from fixating on objects of desire that will disappoint. Uh, And the young Nietzsche is very much entranced with Schopenhauer in this way, Schopenhauer in this way, but he makes a decisive break with Schopenhauer. And it's interesting that Darwinian evolution is one of the uh, keys to his break away from Schopenhauer and Buddhism and the tragedy that he diagnosed in his first book, The Birth of Tragedy. Why? How did Darwinism help him do this? It made him realize that all reality, and therefore also all human reality, is nothing but the will to power. The will to power is a key thought in, in Nietzsche, and it connects with the doctrine of desire in Buddhism, in Schopenhauer, stretching all the way back to Augustine. What we more normally call desire is uh, recast by Nietzsche as the will to power. And he gets this idea from the Darwinian uh, discovery of the survival imperative that governs all uh, human evolution. And it, he articulates this discovery in some very shocking language. You are nothing but a predator. You live by consuming other organisms. You are nothing but the will to power, the will to power and nothing else. And so this was one of those 19th century essentialisms or reductions in which you cut through all the uh, surface rationalizations and you got down to what Freud later called the libido. You get down to the life force, the will to power that is governing you in all things. I mean, I can see if you live in a a world of immense respectability and self-control and social control and political control and are trained to think of yourself as a basically nice and decent person, that maybe hearing that would be an appropriate wake-up call to your own inner processes. I mean, I, I think we still have lots of people with us who are deceived about their own radical willfulness. So, but maybe, so was he new in articulating it in the way he did or to the degree he did? Like, what what made him so particularly shocking in his time? I think you can't underestimate through the end of Nietzsche's life the continuing force of modern dualism, soul-body, mind-body dualism, which for several centuries of Enlightenment culture had taught everyone that nature is what we have been put here to overcome that mind should triumph over matter, that soul force should triumph over physical force. And so the Darwinian discovery that we are a libido, desire all the way down and all the way up, was a kind of a blessed relief for Nietzsche, throwing off the shackles of of mind-body dualism from Descartes and Kant going all the way back to Plato. Plato, of course, is the first to articulate 
the soul-body uh, dualism and to give it a hierarchical value ordering. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds exactly like the Neoplatonism that Augustine was was aspiring towards is please let me overcome my bodiliness and my willfulness and my lustfulness. And, you know, he he still longs for it, but he doesn't see any way out of it against an optimist like Pelagius who thinks you can. But obviously these are just these are deep recurring themes of the Western philosophical tradition. Yeah, I think I think they're very important and I think that our Martin Luther remains Augustinian in this respect, even though many of his later followers, for example, we've mentioned from time to time, Anders Nigren's very influential book, Eros and Agape. Oh, I hate Which that basically book. utterly discredits Eros as desire in the name of disinterested love, which is also his paraphrase of Agape. I don't know what's so disinterested about God who shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That sounds to me like a very interested love, and that's the very meaning of agape. Yeah, I remember reading that book and, and thinking, if you read this book, you're going to end up married to the wrong person and really regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I guess the difference now is with Darwin, there is actually a scientific basis for overcoming the Neoplatonist um, modernist fiction of mind over matter. Is that is that the critical difference for Nietzsche? I, th I, th I think so. And I think that Nietzsche was a shrewd, shrewd enough guy. He saw that civilization was built upon repression. This mind-body dualism served a historical purpose. It allowed Charlemagne, for example, to slaughter the Saxons and bring them under control. Was that Charlemagne? Am I right about that? I don't know. Getting... One medieval conqueror after another. <laughs> but he, he, this psycho psychology of repression in which you say to somebody, stop acting like a savage, stop acting like an animal, act like a human being, not an animal, because essentially you are mind and not matter, and you should realize your higher essence and have it dominate and control your lower material reality, that kind of thing. Nietzsche recognized that that had played a, a, an important role in taming the beast and educating European humanity and creating modern civilization. But the psychic cost of the repression he found to be enormously uh, injurious to the internal life of people, and also that it created a fearful, again, anticipating Freud, repression creates a fearful future return of the repressed, you can't repress this desire forever. Eventually, it's going to erupt and break out. Again, a very tragic vision. So what Nietzsche finally comes to is we have to find a way to overcome this tragic situation. And that's what his no notion of the ubermensch, the hyper, the, the beyond human. He wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil, and which basically meant a way to get beyond the civilized human being who lives in an act of repression of mind over matter, of soul over body, of ethical idealism over natural desires and things like that. All right. So you're going to have some work here to, to 
to talk us through how there's something good to be had of this, because what you've described so far reminds me on the one hand of like uh, Nazi eugenicism and on the other hand of uh, 60 student self-indulgence. Um, I know you didn't start school till the 70s, but, you know, same sort of thing that uh, has left um several generations of totally bereft, empty, disconnected people. So, yeah. So how, where's the good here? Not just beyond good, but like just good. We'll we'll get to that. I mean, I haven't even got to his critique of of Judaism and Christianity yet. Okay. Uh, Because I think we want to understand there's one more step here that has to be made in this little biographical overview I'm giving is that he had his own kind of revelatory experience. Uh, Of course, he doesn't believe in the supernatural in any Christian sense, but he did have a kind of a religious or mystical experience. He even described it as kind of a revelation. And this is the idea of the eternal return of the same. Uh, And this is uh, a mystical vision that in infinite time, finite matter uh, endlessly cycles in repetition again and again and again and again to eternity. It's like big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch, and everything follows a, a, a causally determined order that follows from the bang, and then the crunch. Everything cycles back in infinite time. So, so, the Atlantic slave trade eternally recurs. The Holocaust eternally recurs. The Trail of Tears eternally recurs. And you can go on and on and on. And that, for Nietzsche, was the entire point. Dear God. That you said... You looked at this metaphysical revelation, this vision of the eternal return of the same. And how could you overcome tragedy? You could look this beast in the eye and affirm life anyway. That would be the human being that overcomes resentment, revenge, uh, and, and other such negative and destructive feelings and reactive personality types, and loves one's fate, amor fati, embraces one's destiny, uh, and lives it to the fullest, recognizing that one can only affirm life. Uh, Denying life does not change life. It only makes you part of the bitter human, all-too-human temptation uh, to resort to dualism, to build yourself up as mind and dominate over others, including your own body, as matter. So how do you break out of of the negative cycle? You look the bleak reality in its face and you say yes to life anyway. Okay, so two responses. First, he's opting for the cyclical view of history over the linear one that um, comes from Judeo-Christianity. And secondly, Mm -hmm. how on earth do you resist when you're eternally fated to the return? Aren't you just eternally fated to return to your own habits? I mean, that seems like a preposterous 
you know, so-called hope in the face of this. It seems to me, and you know, I think psychotherapy has shown too how it how driven human beings are to repeat, 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 and not actually break out. But it seems like he doesn't even have any metaphysical room to break out. So the the going all the way back to the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who was a slave and philosophized as a slave. And you can go from that all the way forward to Jean-Paul Sartre uh, uh, in the 1940s. And both said, we are condemned to freedom. This is a very paradoxical expression. We are condemned to freedom. But what both of them meant by it is, and Sartre put this so, so um, graphically, even if the Gestapo captures you and tortures you, you still have the choice whether or not to collaborate with them. You are condemned to freedom, even in the utmost extremity. You cannot avoid uh, your existential uh, possibility of affirming a life in spite of the nightmare represented by the myth of the eternal return uh, or succumbing to a reactive existence uh, that makes you nothing but a pawn of those forces. So in this sense, existential freedom, uh, whether it is from Epictetus or whether it is from Jean-Paul Sartre or whether it is from Nietzsche, uh, existential freedom is not freedom over your circumstances, which are heroically faced as being tragic. You know, the, nature is not going to do you any favors. It's going to wipe you out eventually. Uh, uh, but you always are condemned to the freedom of your response to your circumstances. Now, of course, that takes great courage, and Nietzsche doubted that the mass of contemporary human beings could ever be that courageous. That's why the genuine Nietzschean existentialist is certainly not a mass man or mass woman. The genuine existentialist is the kind of the supreme individualist who makes his own life a work of art in the face of, uh, of the, the utter indifference and uncaring nature. How's that for an answer? Well, I'm, I mean, it. <laughs> I, I can see the point. Like, I can see arguing against the freedom of circumstances. That doesn't exist. I suppose you'd still have to give some convincing account of how your freedom of response even can be justified. I mean, I, I, you could, I suppose, scientifically justify it as like the emergence of consciousness, which seems to be at least the way we experience it unique to the human species. But on the other hand, it seems to me you could just as easily consider that determined by the circumstances. So even your response is not actually free. I, it seems kind of like a snake biting its tail to me, but okay. Well, if you live in a, in a tragic universe, uh, the eternal return of the same is meant to make you face up to the utter collapse of the 19th century's faith in human progress. I see. That's why you like him. Now I get it. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I like him, but uh, or appreciate him. Maybe not like him, but appreciate him. Right? Is that there is a just a, a deep tragedy in the human condition that cannot objectively be overcome. Uh, uh, it can only be subjectively overcome 
by the heroic courage of the existential decision to affirm firm one's life with amor fati, the love of one's fate, the love of one's destiny. I would say if Nietzsche and others are giving an accurate portrait of what reality is like, then I would say what what he comes up with, the Superman of, of enormous courage, I mean, that that is the best available option. So I will grant that point. And But here here's the point of contact with our Lutheran theology. If you go back to Luther's Three Lights of Nature, Grace, and Glory that he discusses at the end of the treatise on the captive will, uh, Luther says, frankly, that if all we have is the light of nature, if all that we have is the light of nature, we must conclude either that God, the author of our existence, is malicious, and if not malicious, then negligent, and most likely of all, not there at all. Luther himself says that. And and Nietzsche is philosophically the one who says, away with all platonic illusions about the progress of mind over matter and the rise of civilization as if this were some kind of pain-free ascent when in fact it's built on centuries of bloodshed and repression uh, and so forth. So Nietzsche has the great virtue in my mind of, of tearing off the rose-colored glasses provided by the tradition of idealistic philosophy and forcing uh, his readers to see what an objectively godless world actually looks like. Oh, and I suppose correspondingly, then, it would be a challenge to people who claim to be Christians is to stop um, pretending or using a pretend version of grace to put a little leaven of sweetness into the bitterness of nature. And I can see that if there, the way Nietzsche port, uh, depicts the world that either it's only nature, but if there really is grace, then that would have to be so radically altering that you couldn't play along the game anymore of of just putting a, a light dusting of grace over nature and pretending that everything is fine. Well, very good, Sarah. You've actually anticipated the next... Th- I want to move now to Nietzsche's critique of Christianity. And you've already hit the nail on the head. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, is writing at the apex of 19th century liberal uh, Lutheran theology of progress under the uh, uh, banner of Albrecht Ritschel and his followers. And when Nietzsche looked at this, which he thought was simply uh, the philosophy, the ethical idealism of Immanuel Kant, uh, draped up in some religious language uh, uh, by uh, German Lutheran theology of the 19th century, he said contemptuously, what is Christianity but Platonism for the people? <laughs> right. Pop Platonism. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Be and good and go. you'll go to heaven when you die. Your soul will float up to heaven when you die. Exactly. Right, right. Because uh, uh, even if you cannot complete your progressive sanctification here on earth, uh, uh, the very effort to live a moral life 
depends on hypothesizing a heavenly reward for those who try. And the authorities on earth can threaten you into behaving yourself with it, too. So that's how they, they exercise repression in a religious domain, right? Yeah, but even for, for Nietzsche, it's even deeper. It's how many people internalize this Platonized Christianity and live these self-repressed lives, uh, where it's not at all a matter of love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, to quote St. Paul, but it's much more a matter of I will do my duty because for that, uh, my, my, integ- my, my integrity uh, as a moral person depends on performing my duty. And uh, for that, I can expect, if not in this life, in the next life, my full recognition and reward. Right. And a lot of bitter ex-religious people have come exactly out of that kind of environment where it was repress, repress, control, control, deny your nature, be good, so you'll go to heaven. And at some point, as you say, the the return of their repress just explodes. And unfortunately, it just it takes out everything in its wake, just like a bomb going off. That's right. And that's why Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God. Now, this is such an offensive thing, and of course, Nietzsche meant to be provocative and so forth and so on, but we brush away all the um, uh, uh, superficial reaction to this and understand what he's saying. He's saying the idea of a benign uh, grandfatherly figure sitting up in the clouds, watching over us, guaranteeing our happiness, if not now, then in the hereafter. Uh, This pop Platonism, this um, version of Christianity, has become not credible, incredible for the masses of people. And he's looking out at his world with all the misery caused by industrialization, all the social unrest, the rise of socialist movements, with which he's not sympathetic because he finds that to be another version of uh, this platonic repression. Uh, Nietzsche is a, a critic of Judaism, Christianity, and socialism, which he sees as all continuous with ethical idealism in some way or another. But for thinking people, for serious people, Nietzsche is saying the God who, who sits in heaven uh, authorizing this whole worldview has become incredible. No one believes it anymore. It's dead. This idea of God as the perfect being in heaven is dead. Well, he may have announced that a little ahead of the masses catching up with him, but I would say it seems like in uh, advanced Western societies now, he was right. That's That's where it's at. Right, and that's why Nietzsche's critique is so valuable for us Christian theologians uh, in order to understand that we don't need any longer to defend what I call somewhat sarcastically perfect being theology. We don't need to defend this um, antiquated worldview in which a benign parental figure sits up above watching from a distance to guarantee our eventual happiness. This is just a a kind of a, it's not New Testament Christianity, 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway. It certainly isn't that anyway. But I mean, just uh, I, I can speak from my own feelings on this, that if I try, you know, as obviously I'm a Christian believer and a theologian, but if I try to approach God by thinking of God in the generic Western civilization terms of, like you said, perfect being, benign figure, designer, creator, intending ultimate good, like I, I'm an atheist. I like, I, I can't actually find my way to that. It seems utterly implausible and just frankly unnecessary. The reason I'm a believer actually... I mean, it's partly my theological training, but at this point, the only plausible access I can have to God's reality actually is through Jesus Christ, specifically his crucifixion and leading into his resurrection. Like that, that to me leads to God, Uh, an idea of God leads to atheism. And you have to then note that in the 19th century German Lutheranism, you had uh, authoritative figures like Albrecht Ritchel saying that the idea of the wrath of God is a primitive illusion. It has no further place in Christian theology. Uh, uh, You have Adolf von Harnack saying the warring God of the Old Testament is passé and and, uh, it belongs to a stage of culture that may have been historically inevitable, but it's uh, uh, now something that Christians should dispense with. So let's jettison the Old Testament. And you had, again, I love to quote H. Richard Niebuhr's summary of American liberal Protestant preaching from this time about a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. All of this is captured when Nietzsche rejects Christianity as Platonism for the people. It seems to me that when I see attempts to revive Christian faith in secular Western contexts, it often is not actually proceeding towards the New Testament apocalyptic theology that we've talked a lot here, but it's actually trying to force people to say that perfect being theology is plausible again. And I think that effort manifestly fails, don't you? Yes, I do, and uh, I think apologetics on that basis are uh, deeply uh, misguided. Uh, We should accept Nietzsche's critique of Platonism for the people and go back to the drawing boards to rediscover, as you said, the apocalyptic theology of the New Testament. Now, let's move to the next point here uh, in the value of Nietzsche's critique of Christianity. What really is nihilism? We get this word thrown around all the time, nihilism, especially in Christian uh, circles, that our culture has become nihilistic. And many interpreters blame Nietzsche. They say Nietzsche's vision of the eternal return of the same is what nihilism is. Uh, Frankly, that's what I thought too. (laughs) Right. It's, nihilism is the metaphysics of one damn thing after another with no purpose at all. Uh, and so deal with it. Overcome yourself and deal with it and affirm your fate. Perhaps, but Nietzsche said, look at, let's look at the alternative in Christian Platonism. And he made this comment. Man is so desperate for meaning that he would rather have no thing that is God, a nothing, 
for a meaning than no meaning at all. That's and that's true. how he interpreted Buddhism, um, uh, ascetic Christianity, inward repression, all of these on a continuum that at least this act of repression uh, gives a meaning to life. Uh, you can think of a figure like Pascal, for example, this radically Christocentric French Catholic uh, who finds the meaning of life, his life, to consist in his renunciation of worldly glory and power and satisfactions and so forth. Now, Pascal would be a rather uh, positive example of the phenomenon. But what Nietzsche is, is getting at is that the illusion of transcendence, the illusion of perfect being theology as my final uh, hope in the hereafter, uh, gives rise, it captures people. It still captures people because they're desperate to have a meaning in their life. Even if, if they were honest, they would see that the meaning of their life is nothing. It's not there. And that's his atheism coming out, right? I also see this in how people interpret illness and accidents. Like nobody will accept that, you know, they got the disease because statistically a certain number of people are going to get X disease and you just happen to be the unlucky one who got it or that there was a terrible accident and, you know, God was trying to teach you a lesson or something. I'm not not trying to say that there's there's never any aspect of that. And I think people can can fruitfully interpret their illness or their accidents. But I, I, what I think what I'm trying to say is that it's much better to imagine punishment or a lesson inflicted than to imagine that you're just a statistical casualty. Right. And of course, that's what Nietzsche's myth of the eternal return is meant to drive home. There is no big plan in nature that's guaranteeing your happiness. Or even your unhappiness. Or your unhappiness. Yes, it's all fate. And it has nothing to do with you personally. And that, to accept that is kind of, is, kind of, is very difficult for people because they, they are desperate that their lives mean something. Now, Christian theology can connect with this insight, though with, it puts a different spin on it, because it's no less a figure than Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who reminds us that the Heavenly Father causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust alike and his sun to shine on the evil and the good together so that the natural processes of creation are not providentially ordered uh, for our individual benefit. They're, 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 they are providentially ordered, but not on that level of individual benefit. Now, what do Christians then make of that? Do they make of that the indifference of God? No, because in the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus chastises the people to whom he's just said that when he says, why do you ask, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Why do you have anxiety about the indifference of nature? Your Heavenly Father knows all these things that you need, and you can't change anything. It's just like, in a way, just like Epictetus and Sartre and Nietzsche. You, by worrying, you can't add anything to your height. You can't change the number of hairs on your head. 
but you are of more value than the birds of the field that can't fall to the ground without your heavenly Father's knowledge. And then how does Jesus tie all this up together? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and these other things will take care of themselves, will be provided, and so forth. So the, the answer of Christianity uh, to the radical challenge of, of nihilism, of the experience uh, that Nietzsche is trying to get us to attend to, is a recognition uh, that our fates are not simply blind, but they're in the hands of the one Jesus calls the Heavenly Father, and that therefore the Heavenly Father can be petitioned that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven. And the believer can live in that confidence and in that anticipation. Uh, that they can invoke the coming of the kingdom of God, its goodness, and its victory. And that is what ultimately takes care of all of these um, uh, besetting uh, difficulties of life. I mean, it sounds great, but why believe that over the, the myth of the return unless you get a revelation as powerful as Nietzsche's was? Yeah, and I think that's right. I think you do have to to believe that, you have to have a revelation as powerful as Nietzsche's, uh, and it's called uh, the Word and Sacraments of Christ, which is what is supposed to be happening in the churches that are the so-called Christian churches. So, uh, But let's not go off on that detour at the moment. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I want to just make one more point about the importance of Nietzsche. So what really is nihilism? Again, is it simply his tragic worldview when, in fact, Christian theology, I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, can also, and Luther's teaching on the light of nature, Christian theology can also recognize the darkness of God's hiddenness behind the pandemic and the tsunami? No. Christianity can recognize the role of chaos in human experience, chaos with respect to human purposes, and it, 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 it can't chicken out of that recognition. It has to recognize courageously that this, too, is the hidden work of God. And because it can recognize courageously that this is the hidden work of God, it can appeal against the hidden God to the revealed God. It can appeal to the God who tells us to seek first his kingdom. And it can pray and therefore anticipate life in the expectation, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that that will is good and for us in Jesus Christ, as you said earlier. So it's a matter of actually doing the word and sacraments as commanded and then comparing the fruits, which is also from the Sermon on the Mount, right? So what is the fruitfulness of Nietzsche's um, Ubermensch or his version of, of the eternal return versus the fruitfulness of a, an existing church of people who are indeed living and walking by faith. I mean, that that would be finally where you would have to do the comparison because you don't have the epistemological vantage point to compare the metaphysics directly. Would it be something like that? I think that's exactly right. And I think what that leads to is the recognition that, well, when we finally 
wrap this episode up, I want to get to this in a moment, uh, when I want to talk about the influence of Nietzschean theology, the finally an interesting conclusion that Nietzsche and the Apostle Paul are not so much opponents as they are rivals. Hmm. Why? Both have a doctrine of human self-overcoming. Of course, for Paul, the self-overcoming has occurred in the obedience of Jesus Christ, which by the Holy Spirit uh, is worked in the lives of all believers who die with Christ in baptism and rise in Christ to newness of life. There's that kind of self-overcoming that occurs for Paul in the Christ event and its spiritual application to us, that is application to us by the Holy Spirit through the Word and the Sacraments. So they're really deeply agreed that apart from Christ, God is indistinguishable from the devil and that human beings are willingly enslaved, therefore, to systems of repression that cannot deliver themselves, that cannot deliver them from the darkness, that an intervention has to occur. For Nietzsche, it was the revelation of the eternal return. For Paul, it was the revelation on the road to Damascus. And this intervention leads to a human self-overcoming, not opponents, rivals. Hmm. That's really interesting. And interesting, Paul, too, claims to have you know, more than one revelation. So it's almost like Nietzsche needed a revelation in order to take down Paul. And that brings us to Nietzsche's last book, The Antichrist. It was the, a short little treatise that he wrote at the end of his life. And I just want to mention it because it's, it's kind of a curious little book yeah. in which <laughs> Nietzsche tries to save Jesus from Paul. Uh. I mean, if you... If you read The Antichrist, that's the project. Ah. So for Nietzsche, the historical Jesus is like a 1960s San Francisco flower child. <laughs> He's just love and joy and peace and naivete. He's a kind of a clownish figure in a sweet way, you know, a naive who gets chewed up by the system. Right. That was the real Jesus. And then along comes Paul who turns Jesus into this otherworldly savior and with blood and gore dripping from the cross and all that gross stuff. Uh, that's John, not Paul. Come on, Nietzsche. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's only an interesting book for philosophical purposes. It's totally dependent on some 19th century uh, cliches of the quest for the historical Jesus. Yeah, I had actually never read Nietzsche directly until we were preparing for this episode, though I realized I'd been breathing his air for a long time. And I read Genealogy of Morals and the Antichrist, and I was going to say, maybe we can talk a little bit about genealogy. I actually enjoyed that and found it hilarious and insightful. But the Antichrist, I found so unbelievably tedious, I just ended up scanning it towards the end. I couldn't, I, I, I didn't grasp the subtext, but I just, I, I was just bored by it. It was sheer, sheer tedious. So, yes, I, I'm curious to hear you explain the point because I obviously didn't grasp it. Yeah, I think the influential point historically is the juxta where, where, where Nietzsche says Dionysius versus the crucified. Am I understood? 
Dionysius versus the crucified. That's how the book concludes. Hmm. Remember, Dionysius is this Greek god of the of chaos and Drunkenness. revelry and yeah. so forth, and the crucified. Now, by the crucified, he means Paul the Apostle's representation, false representation, according to Nietzsche, of Jesus as a kind of dramatized Socrates drinking the hemlock, dying on the cross in order to reject this material life for the sake of an, of an unreal, otherworldly, heavenly life, that kind of thing, right? So that's what Dionysius versus the crucified means. And it's Nietzsche's way of saying that he regards Christianity as nothing but, or Jesus Christ crucified as nothing but Pop Socrates. And like Socrates, at least dies peacefully drinking the hemlock, having a philosophical disquisition, whereas Jesus dies in agony on the cross and it's, you know, it's not a morfati with Jesus on the cross and all that. So, so that's the import of the book, uh, The Antichrist. But let's go back to the method of genealogy. Why don't you tell us what you got out of reading that? Well, I, I saw that Nietzsche is a really entertaining writer when he isn't being tedious about Jesus and stuff. So I, I have to say, I, I actually laughed out loud a few times and found his his style uh, pretty um, entertaining. Um, I, here, I, I will say here what I actually directly appreciated and not just, um, you know, through the back door appreciated in that book. Um, it's a great deal about resentment. And I hadn't given much direct thought or attention in my life so far to the power of resentment. Um, and envy, envy is a, a similar sort of thing. But resentment, at least the, the way we use the word in English, has this kind of like um, dirtier quality to it. Like envy can just be kind of naked and open. Like you can just envy someone else's, I don't know, diamond ring or whatever. But resentment is this kind of like suppressed and bubbling and contemptuous and, you know, trying to look how to sabotage another person without getting taught. It's just, it's an ugly emotion both to have and to perceive. And um, the way he gives light to the power of resentment to drive human society and relations. I, I had a kind of shock of recognition of how how deeply true that is. And then he seems to pair it with this um, pretend religiosity or spirituality, it certainly doesn't have to be Christian, of being against life in order to make yourself look better than you are and to try to, like an alchemist, transmute your resentment into gold. But that isn't change the fact that it's actually just lead and it's lead that's dragging you down. And I can completely see the the point about a kind of religiosity, again, Christian or any other, that exists to take all the life out of life and to suck it dry and make you, um, for very paltry promises, give up the sheer the potential for sheer joy in being being an animal, being a body, moving through the world, breathing air, eating food, making love, all the all the things that are, and I I suppose it really became so vivid to me in in uh, getting back into Augustine again because there's a kind of um you know 
Augustine gets a bad rap as being anti-pleasure, anti-desire, anti-body, but actually he's like the bulwark against total denial of bodiliness in Pelagius or Julian of Aclanum and some of the rising ascetic movements there. Um, I, it reminded me that I once read this book by a Romanian philosopher whose name I can't remember, but it was a tirade, a Nietzschean tirade, I realize now, against saints, saying that saints exhibit the most radical will to power because by denying everything bodily, they are asserting themselves so willfully and people mistake it for holiness, but it is the most naked play for power ever constructed by a, a human being. And um, so I, I have to say in that respect, as a skewering of religion pretending to be good when in fact it's either encouraging people to die early or to um, cover up their will to power with um, a veneer of religiosity. I have to say it struck home. I thought he was dead on there. Yeah, I think that's very valuable, the the critique of resentment and the expose of resentment as being a motive force in a lot of these kind of uh, body-denying, dualistic versions of, of Christianity uh, right on target. Uh, the method of genealogy, I think, is important to mention here because uh, one of the arguments Nietzsche is making in the book, it's a, the book titled is Genealogy of Morals. So the question is, where historically do morals come from? Uh, it's the idea very current right now that morals or moral values are socially constructed and we exp uh, have we inherit them by tradition, we internalize them psychologically, and they seem to us to be a fixed part of our natures. But in fact, they are historic, they have been historically and socially created. And so a method of genealogy is trying to overcome the illusion of fixity uh, with regard to, say, something like we've talked about a lot today, uh, mind-body dualism. Is it simply a natural fact that the mind and the body are ontologically two separate types of things, as Descartes suggested? Uh, to a lot of modern people, they might not think in terms of Descartes' philosophy, but they have certainly internalized the idea that my body is nothing but an instrument and a vessel where my mind is what is the really real me or something like that. And there's a whole value system associated with that. Nietzsche's point is that it's historically constructed. And what, can be, what was historically constructed can be understood by the method of genealogy by going back and, and uncovering its historical development. Of course, this is for a liberative purpose. What is constructed can be deconstructed, which is why the notion of deconstruction has become so vogue. So in that, in that aspect of the, the book, I was curious, uh, two part, the, the related questions. One is that, is he the one who first elaborated this genealogical method of looking at something like morals? And secondly, and is that the important part? And secondly, how um, validated is his particular reconstruction now? I mean, it seems to me as evolutionary biology has greatly advanced that most of Nietzsche's reconstructions would be tossed out as useless, but maybe the idea of thinking that way was his contribution. How does that work historically? Well, I think that, you know, the the French philosopher Jacques Derrida 
is the one who has really picked up and developed this impulse from Nietzsche. And he's, you know, famous for uh, articulating philosophy as deconstruction and so forth. And I think in a lot of uh, uh, social justice circles, uh, this method is very popular. Uh, though they don't really like Nietzsche's uh, deconstruction of 19th century socialism. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, specifically the idea of, of thinking backwards and trying to see a, a, a pattern unfolding over time. I mean, in that respect, evolutionary biology that has no, no foot necessarily in any political or social justice game can still accept the method without any of the particular conclusions. I mean, yeah, and in fact, I would say like uh, you can say about Karl Marx in a kind of vague way, well, we're all Marxists now in the sense that we all recognize that politics and economics are not in separate spheres sealed off from one another, but that political economy is a continuum. If, if If you acknowledge that point, then you can say in a kind of a vague way, we're all Marxists now. And likewise, if you acknowledge that uh, much of what we take to be fixed and natural has in fact been historically, socially constructed, well, then we're all genealogists now Mm, (laughs) in a kind of a vague way. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. But I want to mention here Judaism was a particular target of Nietzsche's genealogical critique of religion. And this is a kind of a delicate point. Nietzsche was not a racist. Yeah, he's quite dismissive of anti-Semites, I noticed, even though he hates Judaism. Right. Yeah, he. I would have all anti-Semites be shot, he wrote in one place. Uh, so he's not a racial anti-Semite. But he is a furious, relentless in his critique of Judaism, which he thinks is the uh, spiritual source, the religious source of this illusion or of this cunning trick of the weak. So Nietzsche explains religion this way. Uh, Everyone is motivated by the will to power, whether they acknowledge it or not. The Lord, lordly, noble person, simply accepts this as the natural fact of his life and has no compunctions about it. I am strong and I'm going to enjoy strength. Like Pope Leo X allegedly said, the Lord has seen fit to give us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. So this is the noble attitude towards life. Love your fate If you're strong, enjoy your strength, exercise it. But if you're weak, if you are not able to uh, arise above others like the noble people do, and you're still driven by the will to power, what can you do in your weakness to prevent your oppression by the powerful uh, and make your situation in life better? Well, the will to power is very cunning. And what it did in the case of Moses at the beginning of Judaism was it invented God, Jehovah, of the Old Testament. 
and it came to Pharaoh, the noble lord of the great Egyptian civilization, and said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, or else you're going to get punished. And so Judaism created the threat of punishment uh, by the imaginary idea of God, according to Nietzsche, in order to uh, constrain the will to power of the noble uh, to implant in them a superstitious fear of hell and punishment, which they then internalized so that Pharaoh finally let the people go. So it's basically how the weak make their bid for power, but they don't actually have any of the virtues that Nietzsche admires of being beautiful or strong or talented. They're just weak and resentful, so they they bring the, the powerful and strong and beautiful and talented down. Right. And all of Judaism for Nietzsche is nothing but this moralistic power play by the weak and, you know, Nietzsche gets much better than the average Christian does the continuity between Old and New Testaments, because for him, the culmination of all of this is the worship of the crucified, because who is weaker than the guy who got crucified by the Roman Empire? And now we've made a god out of him? You know, Christianity is Judaism on steroids and worse than ever. He, he wrote about another Nietzsche quote I often use, God on a cross the transvaluation of all hitherto existing values. Right, 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 yeah. Right, right. So he gets it. He, he uh, And, you know, maybe this is a place to draw this to a conclusion because in one significant passage, I think Nietzsche gets past uh, all of this critique of Christianity and acknowledges what he calls Christianity's stroke of genius, What was that stroke of genius? He says that God would, out of love, pay the debt of his indebted people. Can you believe that? That was Christianity's stroke of genius, that God would pay the debt of those indebted to him through the atonement he's referring to. And, of course, he thinks this is a stroke of evil genius, but he sees, he recognizes what he's opposing at that moment. So I think it's very fruitful, Sarah, for theologians to take the time to work through Nietzsche and grasp uh, the, the power and the importance of his critique, not least of all because as we struggle to emerge from the shipwreck of Christianity in Europe and America in our times, uh, and perhaps in other places of the world, overcoming this version of Christianity as Platonism for the people by a more radical reappropriation of what is at the center of the faith, the God who indeed out of love pays the debt for those indebted to him, that's the way forward, I would suggest. Yeah, I, I think like I, I confessed, uh, uh, trying to talk people back into a, a perfect being God is a non-starter. But I think I, I also really hear the critique of a religion that seeks to um, succeed by fostering resentment and denying life is not the way forward either. There are a lot of um, 
I think, very cheap ways of affirming life that have come to fill in some of the gap, but they don't really, they, they, they can't tackle the depth of the issue that Nietzsche perceives. So as a, as a clearing of the air, yeah, he's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. I'm glad I brought you around to that point anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, next time on the show, after a very long delay, we are finally getting on to the last third of Acts. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.